Hi, I'm Tanua Thrash Intuk, Executive Director of LA LISC, and thank you for tuning in to the second episode of Changemakers LA Podcast. Changemakers LA is the inaugural podcast of LA LISC. It is a tribute to the people and the policies that make LA neighborhoods good places to live, work, and play. For our second show, we are excited to have Anita Landecker here for a conversation about the early days of LISC, the importance of effective leadership, and the future of the community development field. Ms. Landecker served as the founding ED of the LA LISC office and regional vice president of LISC from 1987 to 1999. While here, she raised over $1 billion in investment for affordable housing, producing over 10,000 units of affordable housing by community-based organizations. She is now serving as the Executive Director of XED, a nonprofit that strives to improve public education in California by providing business and support services to high-achieving community-based charter schools. Welcome, Anita. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you know, Anita, I was really excited about having you on today's podcast. Um, you know, you're a legend when it comes to Los Angeles LISC. When I think about the fact that we've had 30 years span since you were the founding executive director and me here today, I just thought this would be a fantastic conversation to kind of think about and talk about, you know, what was LA like 30 years ago? What was the community development field like then? And, you know, what, what can we look forward to for the future? So I'm hoping that we really get into that in our conversation. Um, for those of you who are just listening in because you're not here with us in the studio, you don't see me bow down to Anita <laughs> and say, and, and thank you and gratitude for uh, starting the L.A. LISC office. Anita, one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is you wrote a paper in 1989. And yeah, it was 1989, but when I read through it, I was just fascinated by how much of the community development field you really captured the essence of sort of what's even happening today. So those are some of the things that we're going to go into. So, you know, Anita, thanks for being here. Um, let's just get the conversation started and, and let's chat with our listeners about sort of, you know, what was your experience like in starting LA List 30 years ago? Sure. Um, well, so many may not know, but LISC is a New York-based organization, and at the time when I started, it had only New York office. It had somebody in Chicago, somebody in Seattle, and somebody in San Francisco. Um, so there was one person, I think, in, and then several, maybe 20 in uh New York. I was the 24th person hired altogether at LISC, and when I left with all of its affiliates, there were like 600, so it oh really goodness. was a growing organization. Um, and one of the first things I did uh, when I was hired is they hired me for California, and I said I want to be in Los Angeles. That's where I grew up, that's where I'm from, yeah. and that's where I wanted to. And a New York-based organization went, Los Angeles? Why wouldn't you want to be in San Francisco? <laughs> they just couldn't even understand that at all. And I said, no, I'm not moving to San Francisco. You either move it, and they did, uh, since there wasn't very much to move. There was one person who was leaving anyways, okay. and another person um, who had just started in L.A. named Russell Sakaguchi, um, and sadly he has passed away now. Um, but he uh, then quickly moved to the ARCO Foundation. Mm. So it really was uh, just me <laughs> trying to 
translate uh, a New York vision of community development into the context of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And that's what uh, I found challenging. Um, Lisk was based on a vision of poverty uh, that was like the South Bronx or Philadelphia neighborhoods or places that really looked poor and you could drive by them and you'd feel it and they'd come to Los Angeles and say this doesn't look like a poor neighborhood because the houses were not dilapidated and it didn't look like East Coast poverty but some, it is. Yeah and some would say the sun was shining in such a way that the, <laughs> right. the front lawns looked like they were you know just in perfect condition. It did and but they didn't see behind those homes where six people were to a one bedroom. Mm -hmm. People were sleeping in shifts because housing, there wasn't enough housing for the burgeoning population that was happening. So it just looked different. And the mm -hmm. paper I wrote at the time was that I was frustrated because I couldn't just take the New York model and make it fit to Los Angeles. And I couldn't, I was trying to educate them mm -hmm. and East Coast funders as to how to f what community development looked like in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. what, what about neighborhoods here in, in L.A.? You know, I've had the privilege, you and I share an alma mater. We both went to MIT for grad school, and so I've been trained in sort of that New York uh, sort of East Coast <laughs> mm -hmm. model around community development. But having come out of L.A., I knew that neighborhoods and organizations were also interested not just in geography, but also other affinities that people shared, including race and, you know, religious practices. And so, you know, how, how did you think about really implementing a model for community development when you're looking at faith-based organizations and, you know, organizations that were really based upon a cultural identity um, in addition to place. Right, which is very powerful. I think what I found is that neighborhoods were very fluid in Los Angeles. People moved much, they turned over, they changed, people came to, it was immigration, people came to one neighborhood and if they made a dollar more an hour, they moved to another neighborhood. So uh, the identity, um, the affinity, whether it was race or religion or any kind of ethnic identity, was much more powerful mm -hmm. um, as to how people found community here yeah. than a physical boundary of a neighborhood. Also, it's a vast, so much bigger than most East Coast cities and East Coast places, and we were in cars or in buses going through them. Uh, so. Uh, the one thing that I did um, that kind of set the program in tone is that I ended up in the early years, when I first started in 87, I was asked to speak to a conference of um, a whole bunch of community organizations. And the number one thing with, that they were concerned about was homelessness, uh, that that was a growing issue and the high cost of housing. It's still relevant today. It is. Isn't that amazing yeah. that 30 years later? And a lot of these groups, uh, I had come out of an, or a community development corporation and we're asking about how do we know how to do affordable housing and how do we learn how to build it? And I kind of just off the cuff at this conference said, well, maybe we run a training program and teach you how to do affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And uh, immediately a funder from the Irvine Foundation and then uh, called me up and said, if you're interested in doing that, we'll fund it. And that, so I hadn't even really thought about it much. Yeah. <laughs> but 
we put together this training program for 15 community-based organizations that in our view of community was not neighborhood. It was um, a church group that was interested in doing affordable housing, sure. mental health association. Um, some of them were neighborhood-based, yeah. but more than half were not. Okay. And um, they were the incubator in the beginnings of a large group of community-based organizations. Well, Anita, that program that you talked about is our Housing Development Training Institute known as HDTI and has continued to survive all yeah, those years and is considered really one of the premier trainings in the state of California when it comes to project management training for affordable housing. I mean, everybody who's anybody has gone through <laughs> right. this HDTI. Um, so we're, you know, I'm, I'm excited that you just made that off-the-cuff comment <laughs> yeah. and that there was a funder who believed in that and understood the importance of that. Right, and it was the right timing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we think about sort of the future of neighborhoods today, one of the things that neighborhoods are experiencing, you talked about turnover and people really choosing because they had an additional dollar, additional income, deciding to move to other places. But the other thing that we're experiencing right now is people are really being displaced and pushed out because people who have more dollars are choosing neighborhoods that might not have been sort of the first choice um, neighborhoods mm -hmm. before. And that makes even community development that much harder um, to do. What do you think about the future of these neighborhoods and community development yeah. given the, those kinds of pressures? It really is hard. It's the, Those kinds of pressures are so hard. I think one of the things I learned is that um, community development is, can do so much, but these regional forces mm -hmm. of economic development are so powerful. Uh, that it's hard, but I did find that community-based organizations could guide with the city about the kind of development that they at least preferred and didn't want others, or they can argue for community benefits and other kinds of things. So it is to me where community supporting community organizing efforts and uh, some efforts for community groups to build in the neighborhood and to stabilize and to buy up housing now. I mean, in retrospect, I wish we had spent more money by, you know, having groups buy up some of this housing mm -hmm. that now is getting turned over to uh, more high-end developers and stuff. So if I had taken lots of money and just, instead of building new, if mm -hmm. we had taken a lot to buy up the existing and keeping it for the people who are in the neighborhood mm -hmm. and making it affordable, we would have done more. So I think it's challenging and new challenges mm -hmm. uh, and partner and new partners mm -hmm. probably too. I, and I've always thought that we need to broaden the, the meaning of community development. What do you mean by that? I mean that it's not just uh, taking um, just a, you know, a few blocks or a neighborhood, a few blocks, and saying we're going to change just these blocks. Okay. It may mean helping um, certain groups buy up certain housing, or <laughs> uh, helping start certain businesses or any kind of commercial development. And even if they're not as connected to that neighborhood per se, but they're connected in an affinity for others, or there may just be other tools to be able to do this mm -hmm. stuff. We, it, there is a sense of urgency right now, though, that we all need to focus on 
um, making sure that poor people aren't completely displaced out of this absolutely. city. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Anita, that's part of why we're here today. I mean, I really want to be able to hear from you to open the dialogue for our listeners to get a sense of, you know, what were the issues before? What are the issues now? You know, not a lot is. Some things have changed, but frankly, in some cases, not a lot has changed, right? (laughs) But what some of your hindsight and hearing you say, you know, part of what we need to be doing is trying to help our groups really purchase and stabilize the housing, what we call now as naturally occurring affordable housing, um, is really good information to have now because now we have some of the tools to be able to do that. Um, So this is really sort of the point of this conversation is to kind of where can we look hindsight at what the great things you were able to accomplish and able to do, but if we could do something different going forward, what might that be? Because the cycles are coming back around again. Right. One thing I was thinking about, we, when I was at LISC, we spent a lot of time um, working on Skid Row, and we partnered mm-hmm. with the National Equity Fund to save a lot of the housing for poorer people. Who, um, But what we didn't know at the time, I think we kind of thought if we built affordable housing, that was enough. And I think one thing we've all learned in the field is that this kind of permanent supportive housing and that people will cycle through the housing. So very poor people who cannot work um, with either mental or physical disabilities need a lot more services than just affordable housing. So that's just one lesson I think I take away. Um, The second is I think we we did, we were so focused on building these new beautiful developments that um, with hot lots and all kinds of things, which was a good thing because it did help get more money for this. I always felt like it got more resources because we could show city people and decision makers and we could tour them and show that this housing was the best in the neighborhood you know look how beautiful it is but we could only do a small number we didn't do enough and so I guess I would probably say it's spend more money now on buying up housing that's not in such great shape fix it up a little bit but it doesn't have to be perfect if we get more uh, it's better than spending a lot of resources on just beautiful housing. I was thinking of these tot lots that I did on Central Avenue, and now the kids in there are off to college or gone, you know, and nobody moves out of that housing. So it's not like people are circulating through it. So you've got this little tot lot that we didn't know that if you build child, you know, playground spaces, they're only good for a certain number of years, and then it becomes teenagers hanging out on the tot lot. So, yeah, I think you also, this is really getting to sort of where LISC has gone over the last few years, and that is we can build a a beautiful place, but we can also, you know, provide the community with the tools that they need to create sort of not just the one beautiful housing development, but a beautiful community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of our programs to invest in people through our family income and wealth building work and some of our programs that promote safety and creative placemaking, um, as well as su- supporting small businesses, are also critical to hopefully, you know, making sure people do recycle through at some point. Right. And, you know, one of the areas that I also just wanted to talk about is really leadership. And um, 
you know, you are someone in your career um, who decided that, you know, you wanted to, to do this kind of work. For me, you know, I'm a, I'm a young woman who comes out of a baby who saw the 92 unrest and was like, I got to do something about this. And so really focused on my education in order to be able to do that. But today, you know, how do we make sure that we've got leadership uh, in the community development field and we're replenishing our ranks and inspiring the next generation to get involved in this work? Yeah, I think it's critical. Um, well, I think um, uh, outside forces sometimes do happen, so I do think the resistance movement now is bringing mm, people out. That's a good to, one. <laughs> to, uh, but they need, it, they need to have um, a sense of how you resist, uh, what the next step, what is proactive sure. look like. We know to say, stop don't do this. And I remember a lot of the community organizations and the leadership often comes when something bad is happening to your community. So Concerned Citizens of South LA started when um, there was an incinerator going to go in or when there's a prison, I think in East LA there was prison going to go into the community and everybody said, no, we don't want that bad stuff here. Don't make us the dumping ground. But what we didn't have is the positive vision about okay, then what do we want the neighborhood to look like? And then how do we funnel resources to make that there? I think also the, the, through the Housing Development Training Institute and um, those kinds of, uh, it, that, you know, you're building leadership. I mean, I look back on that. Many of the people that we trained became the leaders of the community development organizations uh, and still are. Uh, so people, Neelora Bell, Denise Fairchild, lots of the people that went through it, yeah. then went to LISC, then went to other places. But we do need to paint the vision in the positive places. So maybe working with groups like I don't know, Community Coalition or all kinds of organizations that are doing some youth leadership and then helping them, people need to see it. And that, that does take sometimes just uh, walking, showing people showing people positive things and programs and housing in the neighborhood and how you can do it and how you can have a career in this mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes it's a really important piece of all this. We need the next generation of leaders and mm-hmm. people to see that there, there's a role here. Well, as I wrap up, Anita, I'm just in awe of just listening to your experience, reading your paper back then, um, and just getting a sense of sort of what you think about the field. I'm excited to be here at LISC. I've been here for about a year and a half. Um, So tell me what, you know, just any advice for me as we close out. Uh, I'm so glad you're in it. And I would say take risk, go for it, think big what you want to get done and um, create a vision that's that's big and don't follow you know New York's rules or anybody <laughs> else's um, I'd say speak and um, you know paint a picture that says that's both about leadership and about what it could be and then you have to sell it but the selling of it comes from the community groups and others that are going to back you here. But I think you have to create it as your own and um, just own it. Take it on and don't uh, and let the others. The benefit of LISC, what I always loved about LISC, is that 
It is based on local organizations. Soon after I came, everybody said, the only way we're going to have success is by local offices and local leadership. And, uh, and I think you're going to know what um, is best for this city and this community. And go for it. That's what I'd say. Take a risk, <laughs> speak your mind, and uh, take the leadership reins. And great. Take a risk. You're doing a great job. Thank you, Anita. Uh, it's right. been an honor to have you here yeah, today. It's an honor to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Uh, L.A. is unique. It is, um, and it's not New York. It's a place that's got some really interesting challenges. Um, today, we want to thank you so much for being here, Anita. Your perspective is just invaluable to me and to our listeners. For our listeners out there, please join the discussion on Twitter at LA underscore L-I-S-C, hashtag ChangemakersLA. And stay tuned for our next episode where we will be discussing how the county, the city, and local leaders are teaming up to end homelessness in LA County. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers LA podcast. This podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the Bank of America Charitable Foundation to spur economic gains for low-income families and communities. If you would like to support LA List or learn more about our work, please visit us online at www.list.org slash Los Angeles or follow us on Twitter at LA underscore List. Our host for today is LA List Executive Director Tanua Thrash Intook. Production support was provided by Miranda Rodriguez and the Donias. You can find the rest of the series on SoundCloud. Subscribe to LA List page to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles.